You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. Today, we want to talk a little bit about how math is a unifying force in our lives. And many people have a love or hate relationship with math. That's true, not exclusively, but why? I mean, math can be a delight. It's both a skill and ultimately it can be an art form. It can be precise and be quite beautiful in its complexity and its simplicity, like excellent prose or literature. And maybe mathematicians and faculty throughout the field hold some of the keys to helping us humanize, doing what we do in life even when it's hard and takes a lot from us. So I am joined today by Professor Allison Henrich, who is at the math department at the Seattle University in Seattle, Washington. And today we're talking about math. First of all, thank you, Professor Henrich, for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. In terms of math and beauty and some of the comments I just made, the likes of Euler's identity or the Pythagorean identity are rarely mentioned, I think, in the same breath as the best of, say, Mozart or Shakespeare or Van Gogh. But there is this study that came out in 2014 by the BBC that shows in terms of brain scans that they've completed a complex string of numbers they put in front of people and letters in mathematical formula can evoke in people right there on the on the table the same sense of beauty as artistic masterpieces, as music from some of our greatest composers. Who would have thought math invokes that sense of beauty? I am just really surprised, but I sense you're probably not. What do you think of that? Mathematicians are not surprised by this. Um, it's kind of like art. Uh, you know it when you see it. Uh, that looks like art to me. I think it's beautiful. It speaks to me. People have a really uh, visceral response, and especially people who've seen a lot of mathematical arguments, because chances are you've seen an argument that is gnarly and nasty and ugly. <laughs> Uh, And so it gives you a comparison. So I do a lot of nasty, ugly proofs where it's like case one, case five, sub case three, you know, it's very disgusting to look at. But when you see a proof where it's just like all of the concepts are beautifully linked together and it's so concise and succinct and, and maybe there's a visual aspect to it where you can even look at a picture and understand why a mathematical theorem is true. Um, that's really beautiful. I love this. There's um, there's a section in a journal that I really like um, called Proof by Pictures or Proof Without Words. And those are the most elegant mathematical theorems <laughs> because you can kind of understand them by looking at the structure of something. When I'm standing at the, say, Chicago Art Museum, where I Whenever I'm in Chicago, I try to go there or, or every spring I'll listen to Handel's Messiah. And there's a piece in the Chicago Art Museum or there's a particular part or section of Handel's Messiah that just captivates me. And I think it has to do with math, but I'm not, I have to be honest, I'm not very good at math. So I don't know entirely why it captivates me, but there's something in the symmetry. There's something that it seems to be doing in terms of 
even just a fundamental sense of my own human flourishing, you know, that there is a way in which I recognize that in that art or in the music, there's a mirroring of something I need. Is there something about flourishing and math that's so important? For yes, absolutely. You've, you've set me up perfectly to talk about this book that is just really groundbreaking that's just come out. Um, a friend of mine named Francis Sue, who was uh, formerly a president of the Mathematical Association of America, but he's a very spiritual person um, and really saw this connection between human flourishing and the doing of mathematics. And he wrote this book called The Mathematics of Human Flourishing that's now been, I think it only came out maybe two years ago, and it's now been translated to all these different languages. And it's really speaking to people because people don't know that math is connected to beauty and it's connected to justice and play. This is something that is really important to me, the connection between math and play. But all of these things are interconnected. Maybe just one further thought on beauty. I find it fascinating that neuroscience, it can't tell us what beauty is. When I'm on that table and the MRI machine is looking at my orbitofrontal cortex and reading that, it can't signal what beauty is, but it knows that that's the area neurologically of the brain where I am experiencing what we call beauty. The fact that math has that kind of impact is fascinating to me for this next topic as well, which is math for many of us, myself included, can also be really hard and it can be anxiety producing. There are some excellent summaries of how math stress, you know, I guess they call it math stress literature. Is that what you would call that? Uh, math anxiety uh, literature. Yeah. Math anxiety literature, phobias that kind of develop around math. And I think there's a, a reference to, I think it's Mark Ashcroft's 2002 papers offer referenced in research literature discussing math anxiety in times and math tests and others. Feeling nervous about math, I imagine, is normal, but learning how to address internal divisions, and that's a gift that mathematicians bring. Do you see a lot of stress by that's math-inducing both in students and, and in society, and, and maybe even in really uneven ways in society? What do you think of that? Yes, absolutely. I have so much to say on this. Where do I even begin? Um, first of all, everyone experiences math anxiety. I even, I, so I'm co-editor of this book called Living Proof, Stories of Resilience Along the Mathematical Journey. And there are stories in that book by very successful mathematicians, people who have been presidents of the Mathematical Association of America, Fields Medalist, which is basically like the Nobel <laughs> Prize for math, um, people who've really accomplished great things in their careers who are talking about times that they've really questioned their ability. They've been anxious about math. So um, this is universal. That's the first thing I want to say, but certainly some people experience it much more than others, especially people who are women or people who are minorities. They tend to have the compounded effects of being anxious because math is difficult and challenging and they're, they're not sure if they can be successful at doing it, but also anxious at how their identity is telling them that maybe they have some natural disinclination to be good at math. So definitely people experience math anxiety differently. People who, who might be coming into a situation where they have to do math with 
of feeling like they're predisposed to it or they should be predisposed to it are more likely to do well and not have anxiety hampering their progress. But I teach a U-Core 1200, which is quantitative reasoning. Sometimes I teach a social justice version of the course um, that has a service learning component where my students go out and tutor kids in math. But in this class, most of my students are women or non-binary students. If I looked at my rosters, they're probably 80% women. And this class is for people who are afraid of math, who don't like math, who are, who are being forced to take a math class by the university. So it definitely impacts people differently. And when I have my students going out and tutoring kids in math, I have them thinking about this, thinking about how math success looks different in schools where there's a high poverty rate where there's a a high percentage of students who are eligible for free or reduced uh, lunches and schools where students are getting a lot of support, where they're told they can be successful, where they have a belief that they can be successful, they do better. And it's not because they're smarter. It's just because they're in an environment where they're getting lots of messages that they can be successful. And I think that enables people to really persevere when things get tough because math is hard. Mathematicians will tell you that, but I think everyone thinks math is hard. And it's just a matter of whether you've been taught to believe that you can push through it and you you can still persevere and learn what you want to learn. In that UCOR course that you're identifying where 80% are uh, women or maybe non-binary as you've as you've discussed it so far who come with i'm imagining certain kinds of math anxieties and maybe this is true in different fields where we have to deconstruct some of the myths around the subject matter in that first couple of days somehow we have to get at and undercut the thing that's not allowing those students to progress not just in the field but i think what you're also describing progress in their own lives that their inability to perhaps believe in their capacity to be better at math has a direct correlative impact on how they feel about themselves in the world. What are the one or two myths every time I have to say, yep, this I'm going to get at in the first couple of days? All right. Here's what everyone says. I'm not a math person. If I meet a stranger and I tell them I'm a mathematician, I'd say 95% of those people, I don't care who they are, will say, oh, I'm not a math person. That's amazing. And and definitely my students in this class all kind of come in with that mindset. Well, maybe 90% of them come in with that mindset. (laughs) And so I actually oftentimes have them read an article from The Atlantic that's titled The Myth of I Am Bad at Math. The Myth of I Am Bad at Math. Mm -hmm. And the article talks a lot about growth mindset and Carol Dweck's work and talks about how one of the ways this myth comes about is that early on in people's education, some students get more support than other students. And they both um, enter a class together and the students who are better supported are doing better and the students who aren't as well supported are doing worse. And they turn that into a belief that they're not good at math. And it's not that they they don't have the right you know brains to be able to understand it. It's because 
they're not as well prepared. And then there's this really dangerous thing that happens, which is where you compare yourself to other people. And that is the enemy of being able to grow. Yeah. And, you know, I think the loneliness that one feels, and maybe the listener can identify, I imagine all of us have had that experience where we are marooned in what you just identified, that moment where we've determined we're not good at something. And then we start comparing ourselves to others and double down on the fact that we're not good and we're not good universally. And that creates a kind of isolation that I'm sure you experience in students who are approaching math. How do you throw them a lifeline? And maybe you've already said that, but but what's your approach? And I think this applies to all of us in our different fields. How do you save one another when we've doubled down on the fact that we don't believe we're good enough? First of all, this is my PSA that math anxiety is contagious. So what happens to a lot of people is when they decide they're bad at math, they talk to a lot of other people who are bad at math and they say, oh, it's okay. We're all bad at math. You, you know, you don't have to be good at math. And so there's a community that supports their self-conception as not math people. So in order to combat that, I have to create a community in my classroom of people who are eager to learn math, who are open to changing their minds about their capacity to learn, and um, who help each other fix mistakes, who help each other get through it. I'm seeing this in a class I have right now. You know, there are two students who work together. One student struggles more. The other student um, came in with a weaker background, but is doing well, and they're helping each other. So the maybe the the weaker student is helping uh, the student who's tutoring him to deepen their understanding of the math by having this person explain the mathematics to them. Um, so by explaining math to other people, it really deepens your understanding. And so if you have a classroom full of people who who could benefit from having mathematical concepts explained to them, then you have a classroom full of people who can benefit from explaining uh, mathematical concepts. So everyone sort of gets put in this role of teacher and of student in the classroom. And I think it really levels the playing field. Anyone can be successful about this. And at different points in the class, you're going to be a student. And at different points, you're going to be a teacher. I'd like to ask you a question about math literacy. You're already pointing to it, I think, as I'm hearing, uh, in, in one sense, that literacy is not an isolated or individualized experience. Literacy includes a community of educators and learners Many of us are going back and forth in that role, even in the classroom, even as faculty, professors. I mean, thankfully, right? We get to also be uh, learners in that environment as we're learning what our students are, are teaching us. But this sense of math literacy, there's a study that came out from a professor of psychology at, at Ohio State University that noted something I'm sure you're well aware of, that improved math skills help students outside of class, right? It helps uh, in this way that math literacy has the capacity to multiply the way in which I'm looking for the pun, right? <laughs> to multiply the way in which we experience our daily lives, deeper sense of reflection, uh, a, a growing sense of confidence that transcends the particular math problem I'm in. And maybe that insofar as I'm starting to work out a, a newer confidence that math is providing, not oversimplifying this, just thinking about how that gets transferred into our everyday lives, 
it allows us to appreciate both the beauty that math is and perhaps the deeper coherence and beauty of our own lives. And that may be a little more of a stretch, but maybe not. What do you think of the adaptability of what you're talking about to everyday life? Absolutely. I think a lot about transferable skills um, because I, I do a lot of undergraduate research projects with students. And I do them with students who aren't necessarily math majors because the types of things they're going to be learning are totally transferable to other aspects of their life. And this is true in my quantitative reasoning classes as well. If you can learn how to overcome a mental block, how to overcome self-talk that, you know, I can't do this, I'm not good enough to do this. If you can overcome that in math, math is like one of the quintessential things that people are afraid of. So if you can overcome that in math, it shows you how you can be successful in in other fields because other things aren't as hard as math. (laughs) (laughs) So if you can learn those tools of how to be persistent and how to be resilient, how to um, overcome that anxiety, that can translate into any other realm. Um, like for me, I'm, I'm terrified of public speaking, but I do a lot of public speaking. <laughs> so I think a lot of the same tools that help me in doing math also help me in public speaking. For instance, one of the things I do is I have people help me. I'll maybe write um, a version of a talk and then I'll have a bunch of friends watch me give a practice talk and give me critiques on that. And it feels very supportive. In the same way, if you're trying to learn math, the best thing to do is to just try. And maybe you don't get it right the first time. But if you try and then you're not afraid to reveal your stupidity to someone else, you can show them what you did and they can actually help you get to the right answer by by helping you identify where your your misconceptions are or... Uh, where you're thinking about things the wrong way. So I think a lot of those same skills that help you be successful in math can help you be successful in other realms. Well, and one of the things that you've mentioned to me, I can't remember if it's in this conversation or a previous one, but orators, experts in their respective fields in poetry and prose, those who are uh, known for their expertise, including in math, as you're identifying, have their own fears their own anxieties, their own significant self-doubt that they've had to overcome. So perfection isn't the goal here, right? It's about being the best we can be, being authentic, recognizing uh, where we have some, I don't know if you know, if you would call those weaknesses, weaknesses, but certainly personal challenges. Math can help with that, right? It's something I hear you, you speaking to, which is a sense of perseverance, not doing that alone, relying on the community and trusting that uh, you don't have to get it right the first time. That's not a prerequisite to life. In fact, I tell my students, especially in this class, that I love wrong answers. I wrote a blog post once called, I'm so glad you made that mistake. And I teach them that wrong answers are great because if we have a bunch of students put up solutions on the board and they're all correct, there's no discussion there. It's like, okay, yeah, that's correct. Great. But if there's a wrong answer, man, that leads to the best discussions. And then rather than just, you know, following some algorithm for doing a problem, we get at some deeper truth um, about the math that you need to solve that problem. 
So it is a great opportunity. Making mistakes is a great opportunity to deepen your learning. Um, So what I think is that if you're totally comfortable in your life, (laughs) you're probably not growing. You're probably not not learning deeply. You're probably not um, innovating. So it's a good thing. I try and teach my students, especially people who have high levels of math anxiety, that mistakes are fantastic. Mistakes are really important to the learning process. And we should applaud people who are willing to publicly make mistakes because that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. One last question for you. I think it's really beyond coping and even a well-integrated life that math literacy can bring. There's this other aspect that I notice in uh, liberal arts educational facilities, whether it be in high school or the university level across the country, when you look at curricula, occasionally you'll see language around mathematics supporting a pupil's spiritual uh, and philosophical development by helping them to develop a deep thinking and questioning the way in which the world works. So that through mathematics, those students gain an appreciation for the power of mathematics in everyday life that allows them to be even a little more contemplative. And as a matter of fact, it's an interesting aspect of, of monastery life that there are plenty of examples of those who are uh, who have studied math and are also monastic. They're able to entertain the contemplative space and abstraction for a much longer period of time. Having said that, what do you see as the connection between math and spiritual well-being? You know, I was a philosophy major as an undergrad, and philosophy is what led me to math (laughs) because you have to think about things really precisely. It's all about logic. So I was really um, a big fan of studying really advanced logic. And if you are able to do that kind of careful logical reasoning, it definitely um, can impact every aspect of your life, um, including spiritual aspects. Um, doing math can train your mind, doing philosophy can train your mind to think really carefully and doing so can actually get you out of those kind of mind loops that you can get in. So if your brain is kind of messy, (laughs) you can engage in these mind loops where you're kind of thinking the same destructive thoughts over and over again. But if you can stop and get some clarity and think about things in a more logical way, then it can really help you feel more comfortable because when you're in that kind of spinning brain state, it's very uncomfortable. So I, I'm a Buddhist and I do meditation and I feel like the sorts of mental training you have to do to meditate or the sorts of mental training you have to do to get into like a flow state when you're doing mathematics. So I definitely see a connection there. And I think they support each other. Meditation can support mathematics and math can support a spiritual practice as well. You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. 